So friends, last week uh, we began to meditate a little bit on the Ten Commandments and what they mean for us. And we're going to continue that this week. One of the things we talked about last week was how the Ten Commandments serve three purposes. They all started with the letter P. They serve to purify us from sin, to prevent us from harm, and then to point us toward the good, toward human flourishing. And um, we're going to keep these in mind. We're also going to keep in mind in each of our worship services as we look at the Ten Commandments. Um, we're going to keep in mind uh, our call to worship being from Psalm 119. That'll help frame our, our uh, preaching time because Psalm 119 is a psalm exalting the beauty and wonder of God's law. Uh, our first reading will be from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as you heard uh, today from Matthew chapter 5. Um, and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount mirrors the giving of the law to Moses in some important ways. Just as Moses went up on the mountain, so did Jesus to help the people hear from God. And finally, our affirmation of faith is going to be the Westminster Shorter Catechism summary of the law. Uh, so each of these different aspects of our worship together are going to reflect our time in the Ten Commandments in some way. And it's also important to remember where we've come from and where we're going. So to that end... Um, we're going to remind ourselves about the Ten Commandments and uh, a way of remembering them. I taught you this last week. There won't be a test, but we're going to keep doing it week in and week out until you are sick of it and you know the Ten Commandments. So the first commandment, you put your, you have one finger up because there's one God. Worship the Lord alone. The second commandment, which we're looking at today, there are not two gods, so don't build any idols. The third commandment, there are three letters in God's name, G-O-D. So keep the name of the Lord holy. The fourth commandment, this is sort of like a sunrise coming up over the horizon. So consecrate the Sabbath, keep it holy, we rest on the Sabbath. The fifth commandment, you can put this on your chin and on your forehead, for father and mother, honor your father and your mother. The sixth commandment, you've got a wagging finger and a choking hand, don't murder the seventh commandment, there are two people in a marriage, not five. Okay. Don't commit adultery. <coughs> the eighth commandment, you have to move your fingers around a little bit, move your thumb over here, and you've got two sets of four. These are like handcuffs, which is what you get caught in if you steal. Don't steal. The ninth commandment, we go all the way back to the King James Version. Thou shalt not commit false testimony against thy neighbor. Happens to be exactly nine words. So don't lie, don't commit false witness, so on and so forth. Tenth commandment looks like the slats in a fence, which is what you look over if you're coveting something that belongs to your neighbor. So the tenth commandment, don't covet. I hope that you're starting to learn these because we got eight more weeks of this. <laughs> so we're going to learn these real well. Um, the reason that we're focused on these is because these help us know what to do in order to worship and serve God alone. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So while we're not governed by the law in the same way that the Hebrew people felt they were, were governed by grace, it's important for us to know the law. And today we'll be focusing on the second commandment. Our second reading uh, comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. If you'd like to, you can follow along using your Red Pew Bibles. It's in the Old Testament on page 66. This is Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6. Listen now for God's word to you. Then God spoke all these words. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we dig into this text this morning, would you pray with me? Well, holy God, we ask for the gift of your spirit, that we would be empowered and inflamed by your spirit. Let it transform us, and let my words be words that are given to me and to us, so that we may worship and adore you alone, O Lord. We pray this in the name of your Son, your Word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So idolatry, this is not a term that gets thrown around a ton in our culture. We don't have to reckon with big old statues of King Nebuchadnezzar, right? Like, not, not usually. That's not how idolatry rears its head. The only thing that kind of comes to mind for me when I think of Idol is, like, the TV show American Idol, which I think is still running. Is that right? Yeah. I, I shrugged some yeses. Okay, good. Um, we, we do have our idols. We do have our people we look up to. The, the, the folks that, that we think are, are awesome for whatever reason. But we don't have idolatry quite in the same way that they had it in the time of Moses in the ancient Near East. It doesn't quite translate to our context. And so because idolatry, how they practiced it, feels so alien to us, I'd actually like to use a different term for the duration of this sermon. I'd like to use a term that feels a touch alien to us as well. And so for that reason, instead of idol, I want to play with the idea of graven image. You, you know that like there's weight to this, right? Graven image is not a term you use when you're just messing around. <laughs> and while the phrase graven image doesn't appear in the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, that's the Bible you've got in your pews, the Bible we often read from, those of you who grew up with the Revised Standard Version, or with the King James Version, that phrase might be familiar to you. That may be the phrase that you were looking for in the scripture reading this morning. That used the term graven image. And this has come to uh, be a term used to describe the idols of Exodus 20, verse 4. And it's an evocative phrase. The term graven image, almost like begs for a corresponding term, living image, right? Like, it, it feels intuitive, even if, you know, that's not why, you got different things going on with graven. We're not going to worry about the etymology, but graven image begs to me for the term living image. And that distinction between images that are dead and images that are living is going to be really helpful, I think, in understanding the trajectory of this commandment and how it hits us today. So we're going to do a little bit of review. We're going back to Genesis for a second before hopping back into Exodus. When God created the world and everything in it, 
God gave a special quality to human beings. There is a fancy Latin phrase theologians like to use. Imago Dei means the image of God. In uh, Genesis, I think it's 1 verse 27, we read, In the image of God, God created them. Male and female, God created them. And there's a long conversation worth having about what the image of God means. There are scholars and theologians who wrestle with this. That's like their job. We're not going to worry about that so much. Uh, we're not going to ask so many of those questions for sake of this sermon. We're just going to assume that the image of God is innate. It's something that we are made in the image of. It's not something that can be lost. So if you are a human being, you have God's image. So if, if you're of the theological bent, just know that that's an assumption I'm making. For those of you that that's kind of going, whoosh, don't worry about it. We're not coming back to this. Just image of God, you have it. Human beings have it. What captivates me about the image of God in relation to the second commandment is how we were created as God's living images. Human beings are God's living images. It's almost as if because God fashioned us to be living images, that's why you shall not make a graven image. You shall not make an idol. For everyone to be an image bearer of God, this was a radical idea. Typically, only the king was worth making an image of, making a statue of in those times. The king was thought to reflect the nature and likeness of God. In fact, some kings were considered to be sons of God. This is why kings like Nebuchadnezzar would often make golden images, scattering them around their empire, reminding the people who is in charge, who God had endowed as the ruler. This is also one of the reasons idols were common, as you heard Kate share a little bit about with our children. Since God was the ultimate king, people would put likenesses of their God around as a reminder of who they should worship and serve. But when God gives every one of us the divine image, when God makes that an innate part of who we are, this not only makes every human being a divinely appointed ruler, it also means we don't need to create idols. We don't need to create graven images. God's already done the image making in creating us as living images. There's some parts of like the back half of this commandment that we're just going to briefly touch on and we're not going to get into. The idea of the third and fourth generation and the thousandth generation, this is going to come up again in Exodus. We're not going to touch that right now, so if you're waiting for that, sorry, we'll get to that in the fall. But there's another thing I do want to mention real briefly before getting into what does it mean for us to be living images of God, and that's this question of God being a jealous God. I'm not sure I'm real excited about that when I read that in the text, because then I'm left wondering, how is God different from Pharaoh? Pharaoh was real jealous to keep the Hebrew people. What makes God different? Now, I remember... Maybe, maybe you can cast your mind back here. I remember in middle school and high school, some of the relationships that my friends were in, oftentimes it'd be romantic relationships. Uh, oftentimes those relationships, when they were unhealthy, it went hand in hand with like deep suspicion and jealousy. It wasn't quite the case then that everybody had phones, but 
at this time, it would be like your significant other wanting to look through your phone to see who you're texting. That sort of suspicion and jealousy, where anytime you're spending time with someone other than your significant other, that's cause for like alarm bells going on. That's a jealousy that's super unhealthy. And if God's going to be jealous in this sort of paranoid, controlling way, we've got a problem. After all, that is the same type of jealousy Pharaoh had. Pharaoh said no one was allowed to leave Egypt. No one was allowed to go spend time with other rulers, right? And we don't want a God who's like that. But there's a difference in how this jealousy gets lived out. With Pharaoh, Pharaoh's jealous for the utility that the Israelites provide. Pharaoh wants the people not for the people's sake, but for what the people can give to him. He doesn't want them as distinct individuals. He doesn't want them as image bearers. He wants them as objects. He wants them as slaves. And in contrast, the jealousy that God has for the people, that's jealousy born out of wanting to see them flourish. It's jealousy of wanting them to make the right choice, knowing it's going to be better for them in the long run. How do we kind of get across this jealousy? Well, the Moody family, my family, we, we drive our kids to daycare each morning. And one of the regular activities in the car, at least for our one-year-old, is the ritual taking off of the shoes. <laughs> and there's often frustration associated with this as he takes off one shoe and then tries to like yank off the sock, but it's not quite coming off, and he'll grunt and he'll cry, and he'll moan. And I'm resigned to this, friends. Every single car ride, this is the activity. And I'm jealous. I'm jealous for a time in which he realizes that he doesn't need to take his shoes and socks off because they're going right back on when we park the car. Maybe a less silly example. Maybe you've been in a healthier relationship than a middle school or a high school relationship. But maybe you've been in a healthier relationship where you began to see signs of perhaps infidelity. And by signs of infidelity, I mean, again, something more serious than just hanging out with other people. I mean, like, you know, one of my friends in seminary went through this where he ended up having to get a divorce from his spouse because there was infidelity going on. He began to see her not wanting to spend time with him anymore. He began to see her wanting to spend time with other people in like ways that were not healthy for their relationship. I won't go into too many details because it looks different, I think, for every relationship, but there's a real, I think, healthy jealousy that comes from not wanting your significant other to be unfaithful. He wasn't jealous for her as an object. He was jealous for the existence of their relationship. That's the difference between God's jealousy and Pharaoh's jealousy. God desires a relationship of flourishing with us. And God earnestly pursues this with us. Whereas Pharaoh only wanted the people of God for what they could provide him. This is the difference between treating people as living images of God and creating graven images, treating people as objects, only worth what they can provide in terms of influence or profit. So this is the second commandment in a nutshell. 
The second commandment in a nutshell is a, both a prohibition against divinizing objects. It's a prohibition against taking something like this. I'm just gonna keep this up here as a reminder. This is a great idea. It's a prohibition against making stuff like this and then like pretending these objects are divine. But it's also a prohibition against objectifying human beings. It's also, in addition to that, a prohibition against treating God as an object. Treating God as if God has no more utility than like a thing of gold or silver. We may not make idols like Nebuchadnezzar did, but we trespass the spirit of the second commandment all the time. Let me give uh, some ways of thinking about the second commandment so that we can see this in our lives. I spoke about objectifying God, treating God as an object. What do I mean by that? Well, we objectify God when we treat the name of God or the authority of God as something to be used for our own benefit. Have you ever experienced this before? Where somebody is, is, is trying to get you to come across to their way of thinking about God. Not because they are interested in relationship with you, but because they want you to add to the membership of their church. We see God used as an object whenever we try and quiet somebody in their lament by saying, I'm praying for you. We can say that in a really like meaningful way, don't get me wrong, but if we cut somebody off from their grief by saying, oh, don't worry, I'll be praying for you, then what we're doing is we're using God as an object to keep us from wrestling with God's living images. Whenever we take God and use God as a totem to be deployed, in pursuit of our own mission, our own schemes, that's when we're objectifying God's name. There will be more that we'll talk about with this next week when we consider the third commandment about not bearing the name of God in vain. So there's more to come on this, but I wanted to make sure you knew that's one of the ways we can trespass the second commandment by objectifying God's name, treating it as an object. When we create graven images by objectifying the living image of God, that's another way that we can trespass the second commandment. To treat fellow human beings just like Pharaoh treated the Israelites as objects rather than children of God. Whenever we treat somebody, another human being, as not having infinite worth, we violated the second commandment. And we do this whenever we treat people as tools, as objects, as obstacles, as things to be obtained or as things to be rejected. I want to give maybe a, a larger example of this. Um, in our country, there's a growing phenomenon. And I, I've mentioned it to a couple of you, I think, this week. It's got a really complicated name. So brace yourselves. Lethal mass partisanship. I'm going to say it again. Lethal mass partisanship. Already, the gears might be turning in your head as you're kind of putting the pieces together in this. This term was coined from a 2019 paper written by two political scientists. And I want to break this term down because I think it's really important in our life together in this community where we come from all different perspectives with regard to politics, but we share the same Lord. So lethal, of course, means to cause death like a lethal wound. Mass refers to a bunch of people together. 
It's not an individual dynamic, but a group dynamic. Partisanship means allegiance to a certain political party. Putting them all together, we get a term that describes the increasing acrimony, the increasing hostility that we experience in our national partisan divide. In fact, it's so hostile that when this paper was written in 2019, 42% of the people in each party viewed the opposing party as downright evil. 42%. About one in five, that's 20%, one in five partisans, which translates, by the way, to like 20 million Americans, because not everybody's a partisan, right? But 20 million Americans believe their political opponents lacked the traits to be considered fully human. <laughs> what? The same amount agreed we'd be better off as a country if large numbers of the opposing party just died. This is lethal mass partisanship. And let me be very clear, this is the sin of idolatry. When we spit on God's image in people because of political ideology, we are showing that we prefer the graven image of the elephant or the donkey to the living image of God. While we may not craft it in terms of gold and silver, we are doing every bit the same amount of idolatry as they did when they created images of gold and silver. Because, friends, we need to remember that God fashioned every single person as a living image of God. And God commands us not to substitute a graven image for the living images God has given us. Now, of course, we're not limited to doing this in the political sphere, right? We do this in many ways. Whenever we treat other people as disposable, we violate them as image bearers. Whenever we treat other people as objects to be obtained, we violate them as image bearers. I'm sure you can imagine all sorts of ways we do this. And that's what the back half of the Ten Commandments really is about. It's about not treating our neighbor as an object. Now, the third way that we trespass this commandment, the third way we violate this commandment, is through taking something that is an object and treating it as if it's divine, or treating it as if it has the same importance as God's living images. It's not just the rejection of people that's the problem. We can also elevate objects to be as important or more important than people. And I think that children offer a remarkable mirror to us here. They, they show us the ways in which we do this. Let me tell you a quick story. I, I was having lunch with a friend earlier this week, and he was talking about how we learn what we ought to desire as kids through watching and imitating other people. You've seen children do this, I'm sure, where like nobody cares about the statue of Nebuchadnezzar until all of a sudden one child cares, then they all care, right? Then they all wanna touch it, they all wanna play with it. Um, I, I, I've noticed this in my own kids as well, where nobody cares about the ball until one of them cares, and then both of them need to have it. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't just true for children. It's true for us as well. Maybe, maybe you don't even like wine, but you know that when you're having somebody over, you probably should get a bottle of wine, even if nobody's going to drink it, because that's just what people do when you have somebody over. We imitate what society expects of us. That's kind of how we learn. 
But, but children really are the best mirror of this. Um, as, as my friend was explaining this idea to me, I remembered that recently I, I left this device, this phone, somewhere in the house. And uh, again, my, my dear one-year-old found it, grabbed it, and dropped what he was doing. Like nothing else had any interest except for this device because probably he sees me looking at it more regularly than I'd like to admit. He held on to it and he was looking at it as he was bringing it to me because children learn by imitation. It made me wonder, how often do I look at this device when my child's trying to get my attention? Do I pay more attention to an object? Have I fashioned a graven image that has taken precedence over the living images of God who are also my flesh and blood? Friends, it might not seem immediately as if idolatry is something that we wrestle with in our modern world. After all, we don't seriously try to worship images of our president or our governor or, or even our mayor, right? We don't create golden calves or enormous renditions of the God, but we regularly relegate God and human beings to a position less important than things in our lives. We regularly erect graven images to take the place of the living images of God in other people. Images that God fashioned to show us God's glory. So my hope for us friends is that we may resist idolatry in all its forms. Knowing that to avoid idolatry is actually to be truly human. Because it means that we are seeing other image bearers as truly fashioned in God's image. My hope for us is that we may see others and we may see our God, not as objects to be used, but as loved ones to be cherished, to enter into relationship with. And may we also be people who keep objects in their proper place, not elevating them above people, but allowing them to be items that help us to be God's living images in the world. May it be so. Thanks be to God.